Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. This is Dennis and today I am with Rick. How are you doing today? Doing well. How are you doing, Dennis? I'm doing good. So um, today we're going to cover some uh, lessons learned over a... I'm doing well. Good, good. So, um, Rick, if you could please uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so my name is Rick. I'm currently the senior medic for 10th Special Forces Group and been in for about 18 years between AFSOC as a pararescueman and uh, my time with the Army as a Green Beret. Uh, multiple deployments, Africa, a couple to Afghanistan, a bunch to Eastern Europe. And now I'm talking with Dennis about lessons learned because we're losing a lot of guys from the GWAT and guys with a ton of experience. A lot of the knowledge bases aren't getting passed along or passed along in like ways that are conducive for our guys to actually be able to get you know mouth to mouth with nothing on official documentation or in this type of format. So I guess what um, specific situation were you were you thinking about? Yeah, so my lessons learned that I want to talk about is mass casualty stuff. We're, the way I look view mass casualties, there's two types of mass casualty events. There's the ones where we are QRFing, we're reactive. And then there's ones where it's our team that is the mass cow byproducts. And we're, instead of being reactive, we're reactionary how we think and our reactionary gaps and what we're doing in both of those situations is very different just by how our interactions with the teammates are or our ability to see the entirety of a situation that you are involved in versus responding into. All right. So first part that I always like to bring up is what is a Moscow? Like the army definition is pretty simple. It's when a catastrophic event happens, patient volume and severity, or both, are greater than the medical system is designed to manage at any given time. That is identified as a mass casualty situation or mass cal in Army terminology. That's from the AMED definition in 2019. The thing that that doesn't take into account is it's an AMED hospital level, you know, roll one, roll two, roll three definition. On the ground, we have to take into account medical situations that overload our tactical ability as well. Mm -hmm. And generally, that's not talked about. That's not thought about. A four-man team with one casualty, one medic, yeah, it's not a mass cow by medical definition. But tactically, that's a mass cow. I can no longer tactically do what I need to do on the ground. And yeah, I may not get the same alerts. I mean, oh, crap, we have a mass cow with a four-man team, one man down, like... Oh crap! Okay, I'm only getting one bird. I'm not getting a full QRF. Depending on what that recce team is doing, what that four-man cell is doing, also has to play a part into that. So the event that I want to talk about specifically is one that actually happened five years ago next week, uh, and it was so August of seventeen. Um, my team was tasked with two other ODAs to clear an area in. Uh, Eastern Afghanistan, 
from where we were at all the way to the Pakistani border is about a 17 mile clearance operation that we're supposed to do. And we were tasked to do this clearance over about a 17 to 21 day period. So all the planning, somehow our team was not involved in. It was all command directed planning, which everyone that has- It always works out well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's perfect because it's not your baby and you can't call the ugly baby ugly in this situation because it's your boss's baby. So we get ready to step off and some stuff happens, but the disposition to who we had with us was my ODA. We had 11 dudes on our ODA. Our NMRG force, which was about 16 guys at that point, we'd lost a couple during the trip. Um, A partner force of commandos, which was new to us. We got those commandos the same morning we were starting. Okay. Which, you know, just is going to add to our chaos as we go through the story and through our lessons learned. Um, Had attachments of two combat controllers, a pararescueman, seven dudes from another ODA to include both their medics, their team sergeant, who was a prior medic. Um, an echo of Charlie and their captain, I believe, if I remember right, two SOD A team dudes, the AOB commander. Yeah, it's his baby. Can't, you know, can't not take right. him with us because he also said he's going. Had 11 infantry uplift dudes that were all of our drivers for our convoy and support by fireline that we were taking with us. Um, an uplift medic, two EOD dudes, and one civilian. So we had a civilian jet team dude, interagency type guy that was there to validate and help train and cross train and do all the things that those guys do that and sure. classified things don't watch necessarily go into because I also don't know it anyway. So. Right. Um, we also had three Matt V's, two RG 33s, one of which was one of the RGs was designated as a CT platform. The other was my Casavac platform in the event that we didn't have air because over you know, a long period of time, there's going to go black just because of weather. Mm-hmm. Um, number of casualties having this incident was over 35 wounded, 4K, 4KIA to include one USSF, one M- NMRG guy, four com- and two commandos um, that were KIA within the first few hours of being wounded. So 24 hours before we started the patrol, um, had a PJ show up to us, and he and I worked out some plans what we were going to do. Our initial plan was to leapfrog up and down valley walls. We're going to climb the valley and then assault collots and compounds from the high side, which, and a lot of, it's a lot of extra effort, but giving us that superiority of being uphill instead of having to assault uphill made a lot of sense. Um, However, after multiple dry holes or you know, clots that had already been destroyed because we didn't know they'd already been bombed, but they were on the map, they were on imagery that we had. So it's like, we're going to do this. We started taking fire from across the valley. And we had another team, very similar makeup, um, operating on our south side. Mm-hmm. So we had a fire delineation line, was the green zone with the river running right through the middle of the valley. Anything that was on the south side of the valley would be engaged solely from the team on the south. Anything from the north would be engaged on the north. I mean, kind of kind of made sense in theory. Yeah. Until you realize in practice where we're getting shot from is going to only be from the south, and the team on the south is only going to get shot from the north just by angles, and then we can't see where they're getting shot from to drop on them. So it became a very or vice versa. Mm-hmm. 
know, they couldn't see where we were trying to get effects on targets, so it became very tenuous, very slow-moving situation. Um, so had all these plans of how we're going to do this, and after about six hours being bogged down, sniper fire, machine gun fire hitting us, we decided, you know what, we're going to go down to the valley floor, and we're going to move through, and we're not even going to try and clear compounds. We're just going to, we take fire, we're going to drop them. And that was kind of a, a good idea in my opinion. Yeah, not my decision, but I definitely liked it. Uh, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, actually about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, as we made this decision, um, PJ had his rope ruck. He and I discussed you know, dropping his rope ruck because it's super heavy. Because we're no longer going to go up and down. We're just going to push straight into the valley. And he pulled all of his medical equipment that he could, put it into pockets, into a fanny pack, dump pouch. So he's running all of his medicine out of his pockets. It's actually worked really well for him um, in this day. But just some things to like, we always think, oh, we have to have an M9. We have to have a fanny pack. And you can put a wrap ton of Class 8 in your pockets and do a lot of good stuff out of it. Especially when you know yeah. every dude's got a backpack that you've checked. Right. Um, so some of those just additional, like, hey, let's think about how we're carrying something, why we're going a certain way. If I have to run up a mountain, it's I'm following dudes up the mountain. I probably don't need repelling equipment. Right. Now, dude falls into a crevasse or into a hole, into a, a water group, a well. Yeah, it's, yeah, like, You're screwed. I'm screwed, but I've got my truck 200, 300 meters away. Okay. I can have somebody bring that rope pack to me. Right. Now I'm 5K away from that truck. Like, yeah, I need to make sure I've got my rope kit. Like, it kind of goes, yeah, good thought process. Um, so as we were moving in, or as we are getting ready to start, um, we ended up getting delayed by multiple hours even before we even started. So the team leader for the other ODA for the Southside team was relieved of his position a couple hours before they started. And said it like my team was never notified until after the team was already multiple kilometers in the their clearance operation. So we can't just, hey, like, now come come back here, guys. We need to retalk this plan. It was all right, well, Leroy Jenkins, let's go, because they're already out there. We, we can't leave these dudes flapping because things change. They're obviously comfortable with their team configuration. All right, let's go. That doesn't mean we were comfortable with their team configuration. We don't always have to be comfortable with our partner force or our other guys' configuration. So as we get out, we're going through the valley, you know, take my first casualty, um, some spalling off some sniper rounds and some dudes catching debris from an RPG. Um, fairly early, nothing that I needed medevac for. A couple, you know, not even really pressure dressings, basically band-aids on these guys. And we're able to continue moving on. And so, as I was saying, about 3 o'clock, ditch the, ditch the, uh, the rope ruck, and we decide we're staying on the valley floor at this point. Um as we continue to move forward, we're continuing taking sporadic sniper fire. It's accurate. And so we're still moving slow, but we're actually moving now. And about 4.30-ish in the afternoon, so 16.30 for us military folks, got to our compound that we were going to take for our um, limited advance, our LOA for the day. And 
as we got into that compound and started clearing at MRG, clearing tunnel networks under it, we realized that the building that we had planned on our GRGs, our imagery to take was a mosque. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You laugh because we, you know, great planning, but if we don't know what the building is, because it's all mud clots, like it can change your perception immediately when you walk into a building. Like, oh, this is going to be important to them. Right. Like, oh, shit. And so team leadership started discussing, okay, do we want to maintain this building or do we want, like, we're, we're starting to get to sunset. Like, do we want to assault up this hill into a village and try and take some sort of compound up there to remain overnight? As the discussion was being made, had an explosion on our roadway that was about 250 meters north northeast of our position. There happened to be multiple hulks of vehicles that had hit multiple IEDs in that area. So we're like, hmm, rock slide, maybe, maybe another IED. Because we didn't see any of the tall tail signs of RPG, didn't have any, you know, smoke trails, didn't have any of that type of stuff. So like, that was interesting. About 10 minutes, five, 10 minutes later, same type of explosion, same magnitude, about 250 meters south, southwest of our position. Myself and a couple other guys that have been around a while, like, we looked at each other, Junior Bravo's like, yeah, we're being bracketed. We're, we're pretty well fucked right now. Um, and so the decision was made. We've got a hardened structure or we can, you know, go out into the, into the open and circle the trucks up, which way is our best way on this one. And the determination was made that we're going to stay in the building and in the compound itself. It's like, I, I think that was probably the right decision with the information we had at the time. About 10 minutes after the second round hit in that Southwest position, uh, me and I got me and actually our civilian guy were sitting in the south east window of the of the mosque pulling security, and I had to hear this cutting of air, and he and I looked at each other because we heard it coming in, and knew it was going to be bad. And you know, next thing we know, have this explosion inside the building, dust flying everywhere. The first thing I heard is from. Uh, my very, very Mormon, devout Mormon, like never heard him cuss, never heard him say a bad word in his life. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. My knee. Dust hasn't settled yet. I'm getting my helmet back on because I was adjusting my peltors and everything else. And moved to him. He's got multiple penetrating trauma to his right leg. One piece of shrapnel nailed him right his patella, so his leg is locked out. He's got two additional through and through um, shrapnel wounds to his lateral right gas rocks is outer calf. No major signs of bleeding, so I don't throw a tourniquet on him or anything. His junior's standing there, kind of like, oh shit, this just got real. Um, throw a fentanyl wipe pop in his mouth. Um, not even thinking, like, I'm the guy that the 800 microgram pops are, you know, a great little way to take the edge off, so on long ops, especially when we're split teaming, I break the rules, and I give my guys the fentanyl pops to go into their eye back. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm pulling one out, not thinking that, oh, he's already got one. I hand him one. Yeah, give him the instructions. Don't chew on this. He looks at me as he bites it in half. 
and pulls out his second one. I was like, oh no, like, yeah, got got to remember where I've got my stuff cross loaded um, because I may need that later on. Right. So give directions. You know, we're over the radio landslide calls. So we're we're bailing out of the building um, as quickly as we can, getting all the casualties out. To tell his junior, hey man, take him to the trucks. So we're going to try and set our CCP up down there. And as we do so, I move start moving forward. Immediately see one of our Afghans is bent like an exorcist. He has his feet over his head backwards. And he I see him try to take one agonal breath. I'm like, okay, cool. That's my first expectant. I'm not I'm not even gonna try and deal with that right now. I need to see what else is going on. Move to the front door and my junior delta and the team sergeant from our other team are putting tourniquets on somebody. Like, cool. I step around both of them and see it is my junior Charlie. Multiple penetrating traumas uh, are cured breed from him. I remember right, it was his left femoral that was taken out. Tourniquets on both legs. I move up to his head and just moon dust everywhere. He's His beard, mouth, nose are just caked and he's trying to gasp for air. Immediately crank him. Uh, no pulse ox, nothing. It was just he needs an airway, and I don't have time to try and sweep stuff out of his mouth. So I cranked him, got the airway on, and some of those training scars that, like we've got from trauma too. We've got mm-hmm. from you know, guys have gone through civilian paramedic schools. Oh, we got to try and innovate, man. I don't have time for that. I don't have the drugs. I don't have any of those things. So that's my first lessons learned. Is like one, cranks are your king in combat. Yeah. Outside the team house. I'm not carrying super glottic airways. I'm not carrying, I'm carrying crates. Go another airway, grab another crate kit. Yeah, maybe grab a long crate. Maybe grab an ET tube that you haven't cut down if you really want to get wazoo. But I don't have the cube and weight space for an innovation kit. So starting to get around some of our training scars is one of the things I realized. But what I realized as I was walking to the door and I'm getting through and I'm starting to treat my, uh, my junior Charlie was like this scenario felt just like a training scenario that multiple training scenarios as PJ for mass cows and helicopter crashes. It felt identical to training scenarios that I've been in. So make sure you make your training scenarios as realistic as you can. Mm-hmm. A lot of our training scenarios that guys are getting into because getting either lazy, complacent, or our guys with the real world experience you're leaving or a combination thereof, they're getting less realistic. They're getting timelines are getting, Oh, we only want to, we're training to time and not to standard. That's right. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And so make sure you make it real. Make sure you have the standard and have set goals for the training so that when it happens to you, you're like, man, I've already done this. So at this point, I already know I've got three casualties. I step past Aaron, get the, the crank on my guy, step past him. And I've got two more NMRG guys already in this courtyard, waist high wall around maybe a classroom you know, or a courtyard the size of like a high school classroom, classroom upstairs here at Softness Sea. It's not a very large space. We've got, we're setting up defensive positions there because we don't know entirely why the building blew up. But as we're moving out, take contact from 270 degrees. So, our north 
north, west, and south were now getting engaged from as close as 50 meters away. And it's like, oh, shit. But, you know, we've got that other team that's in an overwatch position. They're about six or 800 meters away, but they're elevated. So they're able to start just hammering targets for us. Got miniguns going off overhead, 240s and M2. Like, every weapon they had was coming into our green zone, which is exactly what we needed to do. We had our building and our vehicles as cover. So their weapons are now able to engage anything that wasn't us. And it was probably what saved our ass. That and some Viper lines dropping big bombs. Yeah. Right. But you know, never mind the Air Force guys at this point. Yeah, of course. So with the contact we immediately started receiving, it was determined we're going to make our CCP there in the courtyard because we don't have the ability to move across our open terrain to, to get to a different yeah, CCP that would be potentially better over by the trucks. We can make it all organized and all the things that you know, we like to try and do training. But it's not training, it's real. So I've got dudes before contact broke out, they knew the building blew up, so they're bringing aid bags and litters off the trucks. And this CCP just becomes a melee of man equipment. And, oh, man, it was, it was crazy. It was the craziest CCP I've ever seen. Um, but what was also nice about it was because it was small, I was able to quickly move from patient to patient to patient and develop my load planes. What I didn't do is write them down. We, I never marked patients of your number one, your number two. It was all in my head, which, as the scenario drove on, like, cool, I've got six, seven patients. I've got a massive TBI at this point, not really recognizing that in myself. So I'm counting patients at one point to my captain. I'm like, we've got one here, two here. And I already sent two dudes out of the trucks. So we've got five, seven. Cool. And I've got a couple of guys had helmet cams. There's... Yeah, we got one, two, three, five, seven. It's not that I forgot how to count, but later on, like in some of those videos and audio clips, it's hey man, where's where's this guy at? Where? And it's dudes that have already sent to our PZ posture CCP or to the trucks, and I'm like, I don't know where my guys are. So losing accountability and trying to now, hey man, like I need you to go find this guy. Yeah, that's really cool in a firefight, right? Like, hey, we're going to do a search party because I don't remember where I put a guy. And that had I written it down, you know, I've got my cheat cards in my admin pouch or on my quarterback to leave for a reason. Didn't use any of them. And so, you know, that's kind of that lesson learned, too. Like, man, like, document your shit, not just your patients. Like, oh, I gave this patient this much drug and hit, you know, all of his misreport stuff. But, like. Where are you putting patients? What's your load plan? You know, guys think that their 18 Charlies or their team sergeants or team leaders should be making that. And the reality is they don't know medicine, so they don't know who's important medically to get off the ground. They don't know if my aircraft can take two urgents and two priorities or two priorities, two routines, where the configuration is, what setup of guys I need to get out and when. And if I'm not writing it down, when I start sending guys out, I'm going to lose complete control of my CCP. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not the team leader. I'm not the team sergeant. The C- I own everything that goes on in that CCP. It's the senior belt on the ground. So if you're the senior medic, you've got to own it. You can't just go, oh, cool, team sergeant's going to develop the plan because 
first bird out, Team Surgeon went. He was one of my casualties. My Fox was one of my casualties. My Alpha was massive T butt. He ended up getting medic retired. My senior Bravo's a casualty. My senior Charlie's a casualty. So now I'm the last senior standing by the end of all of our medevacs that we did. And it's like, oh, crap. I don't know where I sent dudes. I don't know what birds they got on. I don't know what lifts they got on. This snowballs not just while we're in that combat zone because, yeah, we, we just took a devastating hit. We're, we're retrograding. We're, we're retreating. We're pulling back. Whatever you want to call it. We're done for the day. We're, we're, we're going to go back. We're going to lick our wounds and figure it out. And knowing where I sent dudes, okay, dude, on Medivac Bird 1, this guy went. Well, Medivac Bird 1 flew to Jaff, but Medivac 2 had to fly to Bath because, well, we sent so many guys to Jaff already, they can't take any more patients. So now when I get back to an area I can do logistics and figure stuff out, I can think about that stuff. Yeah, ideally, you know, somebody at the talk or jock or whoever else has that information for you. It's also nice to know where you put your own guys. Yeah. So, get my crike on uh, my first American, move over to the first Afghan I'm assessing and actually doing a full assessment on, and I look up my my intel guy, my fox is sitting there, and he's dish-eyed, pupils are dilated, he's just not in a good state of mind, and look down at the guy as I'm his chest and head and his left pant leg was just soaked with blood. So the immediate immediately tell my fox to get a tourniquet on that leg and I'm watching him just fumble through trying to get a tourniquet on. I was like, oh shit. So that was my first indicator that he's got something more going on. He's not bleeding anywhere. <coughs> Excuse me. But he's got something that he needs to no longer be in the fight. I take his weapon and clear his weapon. Didn't take his firing pins or you know bolt carrying. Just took you know cleared it. Took his mag out, and he never put a mag back. He, I think he had checked out enough, like from his mental, you know, from his TBI that he just wasn't comprehending what had just happened to him. Mm-hmm. Um, he's another one that ended up medically retiring from his TBIs. Uh, finally gets a tourniquet on. I'm able to expose that wound and ended up with uh, penetrating trauma to the upper medial left thigh. The pieces of shrapnel that he had were controlling his bleed, but he's continuing like externally. But where it was at, he's continuing sat and become more and more unstable. So he became my number, you know, other than my American, he's my number one African that I know I need to get out. And so, because there's bleeding in the box somewhere, I get TXA on him, and that was about it. Uh, come to find out, he had two pieces of shrapnel hit his femur, one tracked down, <clears throat> down the femur with you know, other than taking out a small artery, no other, like, nothing that we can do about it. Like, oh, we can do a turnkey we're good to go. The other piece of shrapnel tracked up his femur through his uh, inguinal arch and took out his common iliac artery. Mm-hmm. So 
there was nothing we were going to do for this guy other than get him to bright lights and cold steel. The somehow this dude survived. He held on long enough to get to the FST and J Mao, as they're hearing all the stuff going on, moved. I think they were already planning an op in our area. So they put the J Mao at the FST site there at Jaff and save this dude's life. I think it was like 57 units of blood in the first two days. Lost all the toes on his left foot, but returned to being an NMRG dude about eight months later. And you're like, what? Like, yeah, you cut off my toes. I'm probably not coming back to work. Right. Yeah, like, I, th- I, think, I think I'm done at that point. But, you know, these dudes, you know, super resilient. Yeah. And it's like, all right, cool. I, I didn't do any wazi. None of us did any wazi medicine for this dude. She arrived over an hour on the ground, plus the medevac flight, plus triage at the at the FST all but like and survives all of it. You know, so that's some of those things where it's like, cool. We also need to remember people are going to die and people are going to live sometimes regardless of what we do. Right. Do everything right. And a dude's going to die. You can do everything wrong. And a dude's going to live. And that's probably the lower spectrum. Like if I do everything wrong, probably going to kill the guy. But some of those things to realize like just cause you saved a guy's life doesn't mean you need good medicine. Just because a guy died doesn't mean you did bad medicine. And that's one, another one of those big training scars from schoolhouse. It's like, oh, your patient died. So yeah. you did bad medicine. We didn't tape the IV down. You so. didn't tape the IV down. You did bad medicine. You did a crank before you tried to innovate. You did bad. It's like, no, like we need to get away from some of that stuff. Stop, stop talking about what to think and start talking about and teaching how to think again. Yeah. You know, the guys that went through Sockham soft, back in the early 2000s and 90s, all principle driven, not you know, nothing in CBM. I'm not. I'm not saying that, but like everything was best practice. And like, how do we best modify this thing for the battlefield before EBM became the hot topic thing? And we need to find a way to marry those two things. Yeah. I don't always have 800 rolls of car- curlex that I can just use on every patient for my G hospital. Maybe I gotta wash that shit. And, yeah. Like sterilize it and reuse it on the next patient or reuse it on the same patient. You know, things that, oh my, that's, that, that, that's but it's stuff we have to do in our environment. Yeah, hospitals are, yeah, they're going to try and shoot you for that, but right. sorry, the litter police and the hospital police don't live in Afghanistan with me. Right. I'm not getting you know, certified through CAMES and everything like, sorry. And so getting our guys into some of that mindset again, where it's like, all right, I can do this IV dirty-ish. Not best. Not best, but, you know, we got to remember that good, better, best. Yeah. If I'm at least doing good medicine, I can get him to better and best medicine. And, yes, in my team house, I need to be striving for best medicine. Field, out of my rucksack, out of my, you know, march belt, it's good. Good's got to be good enough. And that's where, you know, especially mascots, we freak, we freak guys out because, it's like, oh, my God, like, I, had, I had guys worried that we didn't do X, Y, and Z for these guys. It's like, stop. We did our best, which was good. Yeah. Um, so got, got that guy stabilized with tourniquet, moved back into the building and realized while I was checking this guy that, I don't know where my rifle is. Automatic failure, trauma two, trauma three. I'm an automatic failure. Got it. 
And did I leave my weapon where I was sitting when we got blown up? I don't know. Run back into the building, both to check to make sure we don't have any dudes bleeding in a corner somewhere. And to see if I can find my gun. Yeah. Right. Both are kind of important. Right. Um, and depending on the situation, one could be more important than the other. And right. so clear the building, clear where I was at, can't find my way. And so as I come back out the front door where I was sitting to do the crike on my Charlie, there is now another guy gasping for air, another Afghan. All right, cool. Like I can't treat him where he's at. I'm getting tempted for all. Hey, like what's our situation? What? It's like, oh yeah. By the way, I haven't updated my Alpha and my Zulu. Yeah, this is Moscow. If you didn't know that, this is a Moscow. I can't take care of this. We need more people. Yeah. We need medevac. Hopefully, we can get Pedro or one sixtieth in because I want helicopters with guns and with gunfighters, not just you know nothing against dust off medics. I want dudes that are able to fight if they stay on the ground. Because okay. I'm, as prior air dude, I'm totally worried that birds going to come in and either get shot down, not be able to land, we're going to have to hoist, or they're going to hoist dudes onto the ground, and they're going to be with me for the duration. So I want dudes that know how to handle themselves. That ended up not happening. So as I'm calling in the mask, I'll finally officially over the radio, and this is maybe five minutes from blast to this point. Like, this is going quick. Okay. You know, it feels like it's you know, three, four, five hours, but it's been minutes. Yeah. And I'm calling in on our net. Hey, like, we have a Moscow request Pedro. It was our... So, pay, guys that aren't familiar, Pedro's the Air Force rescue guys, so it's pararescue guys with HH-60s with miniguns on them. Like, awesome, awesome platform if you can get a chance to work with them in combat. Don't, well, you know, they had higher priorities sometimes. So I call that in. My, my captain immediately calls in to the jock with GRG coordinates. Hey, man, we're building compound one, two, three, four, five. We have a Mascal. Our convoy commander hits the Mascal preset text button on the Blue Force tracker in his uh, MATV. So we have immediately two Mascals pinned in for the same event. So kind of going into that communication piece, like communicate this stuff early. Who's going to communicate this? When are they going to communicate it? How are they going to communicate it? Those two, the GRG and our MGRS coordinates off the Blue Force tracker, pinned us pretty well equally within a couple hundred meters of each other because that's the accurate, the, the, excuse me, accurate distance between us. However, somehow, some way, Another mascot was called in from our position by some unnamed, you know, senior person that I won't name, um, using that long coordinates. Right? Right. Nowhere on the ground do we use lat long in the military. It's, yeah. Yeah. Got it. Aviation uses lat long. We don't. Pirates use lat long. Too. Yeah. Right. Like, I'm. I'm not fucking Jack Sparrow. <laughs> you know. Neither was. The, the guy that did this, it's like, shouldn't be using that long, especially in the wrong data. Okay. So everything should have been on Wigs 83. He was on Wigs 87. I don't know what it should have been, what he was on, but 
He was on the wrong map set. So he calls in his Mascal through his radio system using lat long. It sets roughly 3K away. Right? So now air assets from the 160th and from Air Force Rescue are stood down. We don't know. Where, is it, which is the real it, one? Is this real? Is this training? What's actually going on? And so they stood down. And we had Air Force assets in the air. We had Viper lines. We had a Hades line. So we had AC-130s. We had F-16s. And uh, Apaches all checking in. And they were able to, yeah, like, this is going on here. But because of the added confusion of, you know, is there another Mascow going on? Which one do we need to send the, these limited assets to? Made getting launch authority for those guys super tenuous because for Air Force Rescue, it takes an O5 approval, generally speaking, to get launched if it's not an F-16 bailout. To get 160th, you have to get task force approval, which is an O6 for an emergency launch like that. And they're probably two-hour flight away anyway, going over the mountains. So Bourbon Dustoff, a National Guard Reserve uh, medevac squadron, like, cool, we're at Jaff. We know these guys. We were there for the planning conferences. It's been their second and third alert birds. And they just go. They, they sue a sponte and, you know, they, they launch self launch because for this is where we you know, talk crap about. I didn't want, I'm, I'm talking crap. I didn't want standard dust off because I wanted the guns, but I really want to get my guys out. Right. And what's really cool with, Dust off is they only take a company commander who is an aviator in the company launch authority. So an O3 can launch those guys. Huh, that's good to know. So knowing, and that goes into knowing what your launch authorities for your medevac assets are. Cool. I want to use X, Y, and Z. Well, what words, what phrases do you have to throw into your nine line? Don't, don't just throw them in there because it's the hot phrase. Like if it's legitimate, like, cool, I've got a mask out. Well, call it up as such. And you may get this guy instead of this guy. But, oh, I, I, I want to get rid of this guy. He's an urgent patient, even though he's stable. Not nah, like, be real with it. But, mm-hmm. you know, and some, not everybody's urgent. Not everybody's a priority. Not everything's a Moscow. You know, so having those realization points where it's like, okay, if I call these guys, these guys are coming. If I call these guys, here's the keywords I have to get to get them to come. And here what would may cause other delays for them like oh it's got to be an 05 authority or it's got to be an 06 authority or it's got to be a strategic level authority because we have one of that asset in an aor oh and they may be on other operations in rc south instead of rc east you're like oh shit so understand that pre-coordinating with those units if you're wanting to use a unit that's not organic to you pre-coordinate that and that's what we like. We'd been pre-coordinating with the Bourbon Dustoff guys for the entire trip, so they knew who we were. They knew our radios on or voices on the radio, so they felt a sense of urgency and alarm. So they launched, and it ended up getting our first medevac on site, like an hour and fifteen from point of you know time of injury to first bird on the ground. And that's remarkably fast. Mm-hmm. 
landed under fire, mortars going off, rockets hitting around them. Like, these dudes did not give a shit. And it was awesome. Saved half the dudes that we met about. Like, they would not have made it had it not been for those guys. Um, so, as I make that mass cow call, all the chaos that goes on with that start trying to figure out what we're doing. We're getting target, you know, bombs on target. And we end up Winchestering or, you know, completely taking all the rounds off of four F-16s, two two Apaches, and one uh, AC-130s. It's like we're, our controllers were doing work. During all of this, I'm still trying to develop my med plan. I've got my junior deltas just staying on my one critically wounded American. And that's when I finally start getting pinged. Like, hey, man, like we've, we've got some other patients down along the convoy. And we get an 18 delta because all of our deltas, we got five deltas, six deltas, qualified guys at my site. I've got one 68 whiskey treating dudes down at this other site. I'm like, <laughs> so realizing I'm, I've got essentially two locations I've got to manage and they're potentially hundreds of meters apart so I look down we got the guy that was starting gas for air get him moved over while I'm talking to my captain about like hey we've got this mass cow going on here's who I want here's why I want him get me yeah get me this asset if we can pick up that guy and oh lo and behold he got laid on my rifle so I, found, I find my gun, which is, you know, it's like that Easter. Yes, I got it. Um, so real careful about not losing my gun at this point. Okay. Um, just move around, assess him. He's got entry wound, left uh, mandibular arch, blood in his mouth, immediately crack him. He's trying to gasp for respirations. I'm like, again, I'm not messing with anything else. Crack him. And... Didn't have a BVM, didn't have anything. All right, like if he's going to breathe on his own, he's going to breathe on his own. If he's not, he's not. Like I check airway, assess for you know independent movement, get nothing. So I immediately call him expectant. Yep, by definition, should have tried needle these finger thors on both sides, whatever. Didn't happen, didn't have time. And so call my first expectant, cover him up, move him off to the side, knowing that I've got a crake in him. I go over the shortly after that. I go over the wall out of our comp, the little uh, courtyard that we were in. Start moving down to where we were at, where the sixty-eight whiskey's at, and I find one of our NMRG dudes on the ground. This dude was up a few minutes ago, moving around, um, but he had a catastrophic wound from the initial blast. He took a piece of shrapnel behind his right ear, had taken out multiple aspects of his brain and just lodged right in the center of the circle of bullets is what the dudes ended up telling us. Shit, he he was dead in the blast. We just didn't know. But he's breathing on his own. I'm not noticing anything soaks, anything like that. Just He's breathing. He's got a pulse. He's just unconscious. I didn't even find that wound behind his ear. I have no idea why he's down. Drag him over to the CCP. Uh, start evaluating what's going on over there. And 
I had two crakes in my kit. My aid bags now, they're all, all off the trucks or you know, thrown and strewn all over the objective due to guys trying to pull stuff off the trucks to be super helpful, which also got super not helpful because we ended up with stuff where we didn't want it. So you know, that goes into training your guys like, hey, man, I know you want to help, but I set certain stuff in certain truck bags are not necessarily all the same. I want you to wait to bring me a truck bag till I say, hey, I want truck bag one off of truck two. Or want, you know, how, however you set your stuff up, because you know what equipment you have where. So you don't just get flooded with equipment. Because that can be just as devastating as getting flooded with patients. Like, what do I do with all this stuff? It takes up your, your space and your bandwidth. You don't need to use. So move back up to the CCP or at the lower CCP, I see there's some, some airway issues and some stuff going on. But I know I've got truck bags in my other CCP move up and going to get stuff. The airway kit on one of the truck bags that had been up there had actually been completely destroyed due to gunfire, whatever, you know, whatever hit it, whether it was shrapnel or gunfire. But that pouch was trashed and or like parts that were missing. Oh, this isn't good. So I know I've got the crike and the guy over here. I've got a knife. Well, dead guys don't need tubes. So pull his crike out and shortly there later end up moving back down to the other CCP and do my third crike of the day. Not, not a cool stat to have. Like, ooh, how, how many hits do you get sitting in your baseball game? Well, I went five for five. Cool. Well, I went three for three with crikes. Not the stat I want. Right. But that dude ended up living. So it's like, all right, cool. I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, but while I was still up in the other CCP, up in the original one, we're going to go ahead and start prepping guys. Get We're starting to get guys on litters. And one of the things I never thought about, like we've always got quick releases on our kit. Like the AVS kits that we get in Spear have the fast tax and or that like quick release wire, your cutaway wire. And... So our Charlie that's down has the quick release system, the fast tech on his left shoulder, but he's got his radio cables routed through the upper shoulder strap, through a molly to his radio on the left. So we can't open his cummerbund all the way up, and we can't use his quick release because it's all negated by his wires. So something like we realized after that was how we route our wires matters. And it's the little things like we never, at least I never thought about many of the guys, like the Criff dudes, the CAG dude, like those dudes take enough casualties and do enough. Like they've thought about it. They've rearranged where they put their stuff. A lot of our younger dudes are at this point, I was fresh 14 years in and I'd never really thought about it. You know, partly because I run in JPC, so I don't have quick release. So I don't never really thought about it because, oh, crap. But, oh, I'm on a dive team. I probably should think about that. I should think about, hmm, I'm diving. I need to get rid of my gear. Can I? Oh, no, it's going to stay tied to my arm. So having some of those things where it's like, okay, we have to log roll our Charlie, get him on the litter. He was still tied into his equipment. Didn't disconnect his BVM from his crank. And so we're jostling him around trying to get his kit free so we can get him on. At some point during this or during the first movement, he gets extubated. Mm -hmm. 
and it's like, oh shit, yeah, I'm all for good medicine, not necessarily better and best medicine in the situation, but that was just outright bad medicine. Right. But bad medicine's also gonna happen. Yeah. And got gotta take it for what you will. Um so get him on the litter, move him to PZ posture, recriked, reinnovated at that point through his crike, and start moving everybody down and Sorry, my, my time I'm bouncing around timeline on this one, but he, as we move everybody down, we get out of that uh, um, open courtyard. You know, it's maybe forty five minutes, an hour after the initial blast. Come back down, and he is extubated again, and has a um, a king or combi. He had some sort of super glottic airway and I don't remember which one it was offhand and was never really put into my notes of the event but that's an immediate to me like okay he's he's not going to make it he he's done studies have shown you know less than one percent chance of survival if you can innovate somebody or doing super glottic airways and a lot of audio I know know that so it's like I'm like um, still had a weak carotid pulse no radials so I move around, starting to develop final load plans, come back around a few minutes later, and my PJ and my junior delta are doing CPR. Throw the Emma on, we're 10, 10 and 0. So, all right, cool. CPR is effective-ish. As effective as it's going to be in trauma vision. Pulse ox is reading zero zero, so I know it's pretty well done at that point. And give you know, give those guys, like, hey, man, how long have you guys been doing I don't know, a couple cycles at this point. And told him, hey, you got five cycles. I start my stopwatch. And I walk away. And that's one of the hard, like, I think that's one of the key things that, as, especially in Moscow, as a senior medic, you need to be able to walk away from treatments that are going on that you want to be involved in. You know, this is one of my best friends. I've known this dude for years at this point, And I'm walking away from his treatment. And the reason I did, and the reason I think it's so important to be able to have that disconnectability, is it allowed me to come back in a few minutes and not be emotionally tied to the treatment that's going on. Cool, we have nothing back. We don't have Rosk in five minutes. Hey, man, like, we're still getting shot at. We still have a dozen plus patients on the ground. I need to take these two medics off of, off of my guy that is on KIA and move on. And had I been involved in the CPR, like, I've caught shit from dudes. Like, oh, you weren't involved. No, I wasn't. But it allowed me to manage the situation. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's huge. And that took me a couple of years to get wrapped around. Like, that was the right thing. Now I can actually put it to words of why that's the right thing. Right. But, and, you know, now I'm teaching my guys, like, hey, man, like, if you're the senior on the ground... I was always taught as PJ. If you're the senior PJ on the ground and your hands are getting medically dirty, you're wrong. You're doing too much mm-hmm. because you need to manage the scene, not the patient. He's like, man, like I'm fun. like, it's like those things your mom and dad told you. You'll, you'll understand when you're a parent. You're understand when you're an adult. Man, like I never understood that until that day. Yeah. And I was like, oh crap, this dude was right. 
Didn't like this guy. Don't want to admit this guy was right, but that guy was right. Now I've been there. Now I get it. Now I understand. And having that ability to disconnect mm-hmm. is huge. So call him expectant and move from there back to my captain. Update him. Hey, man, we've got an American that is expectant. And notice his pupils are both just, he's fully dilated. He's pinging it. And oh, crap. He, he's a bad TBI. And he, he needs to go. But he's a 250-pound All-American running back from UCLA, and I don't want to get in a fistfight with this dude in combat. We've already got enough chaos going on. Um, so tell him, you know, Charlie, too, is expectant at this time. Move from him. I move over to our AOB commander. Tell him, hey, man, like, I need you. You are the only one here that has the authority to tell him he's, he's getting on a helicopter. I can advise him he's getting medevaced. He's, I already tried, hey, I need your medevac. Me fuck off. Like, cool, I'm gonna leave that at that. And I'm gonna go talk to a, to a different adult who promptly did nothing. It's like, eh, crap. So me and one of the other medics were discussing, like, what can we do to get him medevaced right now? The only thing we could come up with was also probably the worst thing we could have done for him. Shoot him. Okay. The second worst thing we could have okay. come up with was to hit him with 200 ketamine or a large dose of ketamine and let him just pass out. Yeah. We decided not to do that. We're gonna, okay, he's going to he's gonna go out with the rest of the ground, ground force when we leave. Um, but as his TBI, as we start moving out, his mental abilities and his uh, level of consciousness just start going down. He's stumbling when he looks like he's taking a whole fifth of vodka at this point. Like he's nearly walking off cliffs. JTAC, I think he said he turned off his radio or disconnected his radio so he couldn't talk. He's just like making nonsensical calls. So I look back and I'm like, man, I really should just dose this son of a bitch with ketamine and got him off, got him out of, out of there. Yeah, so if you're in those positions and situations where it's like, man, I need to be stupidly assertive and do things that are questionably legal and questionably ethical, like, well, he's my patient. I've got to do what's right for my patient. If the only way to do what's right for my patient is to sedate his ass so that he understands he's a patient, that's not the wrong thing to do. Not the most right thing to do, but, like, and that's decisions you are going to have to figure out on the ground in that time, right. yeah, if I had that situation again today, yeah, that dude's getting big dose ketamine real quick. So about this time, my Charlie went, yeah, actually when he was determined to be expectant, um, first thing I should have done was what I did with my other expectant in the field was cover him up. Completely missed that step of he's expectant, separate him, cover him. And so I'm as I move back to talk to the AOB commander, I get back, and my fox with his TBI, my captain, are now doing CPR on him again. It's like, oh, no. This is day one level buck up. I, we need to fix this. Get them off. Get them covered up. Take him from the number one priority on my load plan to kind of the lowest priority, obviously. It's like I've got two dead commandos on the ground at this point. I've got him. And it's like, okay. 
those guys, like these guys, are going to get loaded in the back of Matt V's or Humvees, and they're going to roll out with us. Luckily, I was able to get his body loaded into the second medevac bird, so it was a lot more dignified for our guys. Um, but still super, super hard to deal with. Um, so, like I said, all, all of the, the blast all starts around that 5 o'clock point. Sun's starting to go down in the west, high mountains to the east, or to the west, and our birds are going to be flying in from the east. So, if you've ever played much with air, the worst times to fly are at our stand two hours. Like, cool, sunset, sunrise, like, man, get this thing called uh, thermal crossover. And MVGs work really good on level at that point. Like, I'm at air to air, I can, I can see you. But looking through that thermal layer that is produced is almost impossible. So, these dust off guys, as they're starting to come in, are now blind to us on the ground. And it became a question of how do we mark ourselves so that they can find us. Anything IR is not non-visible on the ground at this point. So our combat controller ended up taking a red headlamp, two red headlamps, walked out into the middle of the field while getting shot at, and used red headlamps as bus saws, highlighting his position to every dude for five miles around. And just getting creative with how you're going to mark in these weird times of day. Oh, we're out of smoke. We're out of all of the things we would want to use. How do we do it? How many patients can I now? That first bird comes in. I've got four urgent, high-priority patients. Put them all on one bird because I want them out as fast as I can. And... You know, I've got second bird coming in five minutes behind, so I'm not worried as we're about, and it's only a 15-minute flight to the hospital, Jeff. So these guys are going to be stable or they're not going to be. But one of the patients I'd given a lower dose of ketamine to, I think it gave him two bumps of 20 IM at some, like, during, starts coming out of his half-life and goes straight K-hole agitation in the back of the bird. And so remembering, like, hey, dude, I'm getting ready to fly this, dude. I probably want to redose him before we go. Right. And so I don't need my problems to be the air crew's problems. You know, one of the things I've heard the last two weeks, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turf this decision off to medevac. Man, like, it's an asshole decision. Like, right? yeah. you're a medic on the ground with the bro. Make the right decision, both for your dude and the guy you're handing off to. Um, so, second bird comes in. I get nine more, pay, eight casualties, and my uh, uh, my junior Charlie on board. Those dudes haul ass back, and I've still got more patients coming out of the woodwork. So it's like, okay, we've got more dudes than seats, but how long is it? Ask the dudes from Dustoff how long to get another bird out. Like, it's gonna be another hour, just by spend times there and back. It's gonna be half hour plus offload plus refuel. Uh, so put the most most injured dudes into trucks as much as we could and end up busing, you know, convoying, walking back to our MSS site that we started at in the ODA that we left in charge of that MSS site 
had some dudes augmenting them from the 82nd to include an ER doc from uh, from Womack and a bunch of dudes, and they set up the like it was picture perfect mash setup. Like I felt like I walked into the Black Hawk Down like tent hospital where General Garrison trying to like clean up blood in the movie. Like it looked like got T Rex lights up and. So, Mascal didn't end just because we got off the X. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like that's the other thing. Like, cool, we got all we got these fourteen guys off off target, thirteen guys off target. Yeah, but we were in a building that blew up. So now every dude that was in that building is being full assessed. So it's like I'm thinking I've got thirteen patients. I didn't notice my junior delta had taken 200, 215 pieces of shrapnel to his right side. He's covered in blood. I'm assuming it's patient blood, not his blood. He didn't say a thing. I didn't ask. He didn't say, you know. And so we're, I walk in. I was the last guy in the convoy to walk in. And my Delta two is stark naked. Just, you know, sun's out, gun out. You know, type of situation. And he's got holes just from his knee or from his ankle to his knee is high concentration, and then it, as it comes up his thigh, hip, and lateral abdomen on his right side, it's like, what? When? When did this happen? Yeah, in the initial ones. Oh, I missed probably one of my most injured patients. Never even thought of thought about him being patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so. You're gonna. That's gonna happen. But just because you get off the X doesn't mean that Mascal's over. Right. You know, cool. Like we have a helicopter crash. We picked everybody up. We flew back. Cool. It's over. Ish. Right. But this is combat. We've still got to figure out. Okay. Who do we have on the ground? Who do we have with us? Now my captain that he was showing significant signs of TBI earlier has now become combative. He's irate. I have the company sergeant major. At this MSS site, he walks up to talk to the captain. He says, I'm a captain like, and he knocked him out. Which is why I didn't, you know, I, I knew better. Right. And so it's like, now I've got another patient being at, I'm just like, oh my God, this is like, so getting those sedation drugs on for that guy, all the stress he's going through, he gets medevac. He becomes my first patient on. Um, some MH60s, or actually, so MH47s coming from Jaff. Now the JML birds are coming to get us at the MSS site. It's secure. Got a good enough HLZ that they can put three 47s in. And they can bring more teams out to do whatever assessments they want to do. And so myself, my junior Delta, my captain, and a couple other dudes end up medevacking on that bird. And I'm still not even, like, I've still not been assessed. I got blown up two weeks prior, significant PBI, where I was medevac. Probably shouldn't have even been on the ground that day from like what we know now about TBIs. But I was. It's like, okay, cool. This got to make do with what you got. So get back to, you know, so off the X, Fox, Fox, Zulu, Senior, Charlotte, Senior Bravo, all medevac. Charlie two is KIA. So I've got with three Charlie. So we had Charlie three, Delta two. 
Bravo 2 and Echo 1 actually functional. Get back and medevac the rest of the team. NMRG dudes. Up with guys. They're all fucked up. Back to Jaff. And now, in order of hierarchy, I am in charge of the team. It's like, oh, crap. I was not prepared for this. And first, this first question I'm asked when I got back was, got everybody off? Did we get everybody off? And I'm trying to rack my brain. Did we? I don't know. I never, you know, because I never did the paperwork. Or not paperwork. Never did a written tracker. So I'm like, yeah, I think so. You know, so we were able to track down where everybody was at. Second question was, hey, who do you want to send to escort your KIA? Do you want to send one of your teammates or do you want to send a dude from seventh group? And it's like, yeah, that's not a decision in my matrix right now. Um, but decided to send my the other senior on the team, the Echo, to escort me. They were roommates. It's like, this dude... I don't want him to be emotionally shot and or like not have the opportunity. So I asked and he wanted to go. So now I'm down to like four dudes on my team. We got to get all of our equipment, all of our bros back to our outstation. And over the next couple of days, dudes that were less critical start getting brought back in. And this is where our Mascal two days later is still not over. And it's like, oh, cool, we're off the X. We're back in the relative safety of, you know, Fob Gambari, where it's like, cool, we're we're good. But being that advocate for your TBI, Mascals with TBIs, man, like the, you've got to continue to advocate for those guys. So General Milley was in country doing some stuff. And somewhere, some bigger ranked dude than me suggested to Milley that we consolidate our team back together to include my captain who has this significant TBI. So that's what we did. We consolidated everybody back. And then another general decides he wants a debrief. Captains being, you know, PowerPoint Rangers, he decided he needed to build this massive debrief PowerPoint and be all formal and official, which I think it was a three-star general. It's probably not inappropriate but it's also not the right time right so advocating against that like manly not only are we not building these powerpoints right now we're going to deal with this internally before we deal with it externally so helping your guys get into those grieving processes like this is you lose a teammate that's devastating i don't care who you are i don't care if you if the guy on the team was someone you liked or didn't like it's huge it's not a good day. Yeah. Um, so at the end of that brief, the amount of mental bandwidth energy he used, he gets out of our vehicle back at our compound and immediately passes out. Hands and knees. I guess he didn't truly pass out. Goes to hands and knees, altered level of consciousness, vomiting everywhere. And it's like his, you know, going off of our bomb support. We're like, oh, cool. Are we going to put this guy back in or not? He's shattered everything. Like, there's no scale that I can have him do anything um, and end up meta, medevacking him back to launch duel, Walter Reed. And then about 18 months later, he medically retired. So we do that event. And some of that goes into like 
his treatment across the board from me, from the ranger medic that saw him in the back of the 47, there were so many little silly things that we either did or didn't do. Like, maybe I should have sedated him and got him off the X. Mm. Ranger medic, he's got altered-ish LOC, but he's conscious, he's tracking, he's able to follow commands. Oh, he's now got a fuckload of ketamine and Versed and stuff to like sedate his ass. Probably not a candidate for your 500cc bolus of 3%. Right. Yet he was rapidly bolus with 500ccs of 3% because it was the new hotness in the Ranger medic. Yeah, this TBI 3%. It's like, oh no. Don't do that. So it's like all of the things just compound on this one dude's care. And it's devastating. But again, like sometimes those mistakes are going to happen. Can't can't eat yourself up over it. Take five minutes and move on. But also come back and do lessons learned talks like this. So that's kind of how that day and that mask how went. So the some of the biggest lessons learned I got out of it that haven't already hit are kind of making sure you write all your stuff down. You know, I can go through the whole patients and, you know, all my patients and stuff, but like mascal definition, like understand that like a mascal for a battalion is different than a mascal for an ODA is different than your recce team. Um, triage. It's not just a one-time deal. You're continually triaging. Kind of like hair under fire. Like, cool, this guy is a priority evac patient. He's a He's a red or however you want to mark your patients. He's this. Cool. In a few minutes, he may be not that. And it goes back to that Roy Benavita is like, he was in a body bag. He's expectant. He's probably more than expectant in everybody's eyes. He's probably already dead and spits blood in the dude's face. Like, yeah. oh, now he's a urgent patient. And you're like, oh, crap. So understanding that there's going to be flexibility in your stuff and you're going to move from one category to, to the next. Um, as a senior medic on the ground, you manage that site. And if you're the only medic on the ground, man, like hopefully you cross trained your boys and girls now well enough to do the medical treatments that you need done because you need to manage potentially multiple patients, not just one. And with that, like, hey man, like you need a finger Thor, you need a crike, you need one of those big ticket, quick surgical items. Hop in, do it, and then hop back out. And that that's a hard concept to get into. And send as many of your dudes to with your medics to refreshers as you can. Let them get exposure. Send them to SOFAC. Let them get better knowledge and understanding than you probably have the ability to give them on the team. Um, that being said, had the PJs gotten in with us, understanding that, yeah, cool, I may be more senior than every PJ that we had or the 160th medics had they whoever came in i may be a more senior medic but maybe i need to hand over that ccp to the junior medic because i can't get a full picture of what's going on right yeah so that goes into react like we were talking about earlier that i've got my reactionary versus responsive and if i'm responding to your thing it's because you wanted my help if you want my help, I'm in charge. And and that's the way I look at it. And like when I was 
with both the guard company and the active duty company. That's how we talked about it. It's like, hey, man, like I come into you as a medic or if my team comes in, we're going to take over as much of the scene and scenario as possible because we have a fresh set of eyes. You're going to tell me what you see, and then I'm going to tell you I'm in charge and we're going to go from there because whatever reason you're on it, you weren't able to handle it. And it's not a bad, that's not a knock on people. Um, being familiar and understanding what your session of command is. You know, as a senior Delta, senior E6, I've got a senior Bra- or a E7 Bravo that is a junior. Who's taking charge of this team? Cool. While we were still on the X, he was because he's tactically able to do that where I was tactically drowning in medicine. Cool. But when it came back to we're back at FOB, you know, where we're at, like, I am now on that hierarchy of I'm in charge. And it's like, crap, I got to make decisions that I don't want to make. So being being familiar with that, knowing who's going to take that next man up position, knowing when, like, cool, it's technically the junior Echo's last guy up, and we're by, but maybe you're going to bypass the Deltas because they're, you know, elbows deep and guts doing medicine right now. But then you're going to spin those guys up on what decisions you were making. Um, treatments. Don't be afraid to make the big decisions and big treatments. Mm-hmm. That day, I did multiple crikes, multiple finger thoracostomies. PJ did multiple finger thoracostomies as well. The hardest part is making the decision. Don't say, like, man, this dude needs an airway. Do it. You see it, you think it, do it. Don't continue to think about it. Um, that goes for blood, that goes for crikes, that goes for whatever it is. Um, yeah, BSI is important. It'll fail you in trauma too. But at no point during this entire incident did any of us put on BSI. Yep, got it. Like there's risk involved in that. The you know so that goes into like knowing your who you're working with, who you're working on, what the endemic pandemic diseases of a region are like we go to eastern ukraine right now and 25 percent of that population has aids hiv and hepatitis hmm. i'm be real real cautious about not throwing gloves on where in afghanistan the dudes we were working with had all been well screened there's still stuff running around but i'm less worried about it not that i'm not worried about it KIA's inspectants man like with my Charlie too, I declared him expectant, but didn't move him, didn't isolate him, didn't cover him. And that covering, like, man, it sounds like such a small thing, but psychologically, that is that, you know, final curtains dropped. I curtain you, I cover you up with that flag, put your rifle on you, you know, and everybody understands. There's no question of like, oh, the medics just walked away. It's this is what just happened. Like, all this carry a flag for that cool guy photo opportunity. Yeah. But at the same time, that's not why we carry the flag. It's to cover our brothers when the worst happens. Load planes and tracking. Man, I had no idea where dudes were. I had no idea what hospitals they'd gone to, what medevac bird, where the emperor one bird to. And some of it's not that hugely important, but at the same time, like, Oh, cool. Medevac bird one went down. Who was on it? 
my guys. We didn't send up battle roster numbers. We didn't give them a no idea. And that then becomes that's when that becomes that big deal. Like, ah, oh, crap. Um, know what assets you have available to your units adjacent. We always talk about it during our our briefs. Like, oh, this unit's adjacent. Cool. What do I need to do to get them to come help me when I'm in distress? Whether it's a task force eight, you know, unit. And good luck trying to get them to come out because they're probably strategic level deep and stuff. And our tactical level mission maybe doesn't warrant pulling them off, but it probably does because it's Americans. Um, gear prep. Know where your stuff is. Label your stuff so that your other dudes know what bags you want brought up in what order and what's in what bags. There's always debate on this, like whether we use the same loadout. For me, when I've got a junior... I'm not going to say he's got to have the same bag as I do, but when we have M9s, they're packed identically. All of our fanny packs are packed identically. Our march belt, yeah, that's that's a completely you thing. But I want to be able to grab any M9, any bag that looks like this is going to be packed more or less identically. So that way I'm not going to open it up and I'm like, well, crap. I don't know what's in here where it is. IFACs, like the schoolhouse thing, you know, EFMB, everybody says, treat your patients out of their IFACs. Yeah, that's really great until that IFAC has been exploded, like happened here. Use, as a medic, use your march belt. Use your IFAC. I'm not a fan of in the plate IFACs for my team guys ever because rounds go through this. Now that entire IFAC is shot, and I'm trying to pull his IFAC out. And you can't get it, and everything's going on. I can't get my IFAC out to treat you. But having your IFAC where you can treat your buddy and resupply your IFAC, that's what we were having to do. Cross-training your guys, not only to the point that, cool, they can pass a T-Tri-C exam if they had to take it, but to the point that you're comfortable with them treating you. Cross-training your junior medics to the point that you're comfortable with them treating your kid. As a medic, I should be respected enough amongst my team to treat their kids. Yeah, I may tell them, nah, I'm not, I'm, go to the hospital. Right. But at the same time, minor, especially trauma stuff, like I should be good enough. They can trust me to treat their wife and kid. And then the other big thing is what weapon are you carrying and why? I've seen medics want to carry 240s or... Like, real, I'm the primary, and it's like, God, if you're the sniper on the team, you're probably going to carry a sniper rifle. But know what your mission is. Think about what, I'm going to carry a SCAR heavy. Why? Cool, our average engagements in Afghanistan for this deployment were six to 700 meters. My M4 is not really going to do much effective range, what, 550, 600 we're outside of that engagement distance. I'm doing all I'm doing is pinning dudes down so we can put bombs on them. So I went with the shortest barrel I could with a suppressor so I can move in and around vehicles and move and shoot around patients when we have danger close stuff. So thinking about that, Iraq, I'll carry a pistol. Afghanistan, I don't carry a pistol. Again, like I can't, or you know, I'm not doing indirect fire with a pistol. It's kind of pointless for me. Oh, we're doing urban combat, like having it in my ruck so I can put it on. 
having those thought processes that as a commando medic, you've got to understand which role you're in and when. So that's the big stuff I've got for my mask health stuff that I try and drill down on guys. Make and make a mat do some of your mask house is PFC where you've got to go not just for that 30, 40, 45 minutes, hell, even an hour is usually our longest mask health training that most of our guys do. Make it a half a day event where it's we're gonna take cool, we're gonna evac dudes, but air goes red. Now you got dudes that you're stuck with on the ground. You know, there are instructors here, JJ being one of them, that ran G hospitals with mask cows on a regular basis. But we don't think it's going to happen to us. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, you're talking about uh, triaging your casualties. And um, if you could uh, kind of go through, like, on the fly, how did you categorize a individual? So I still, I only use, I don't get you know, into the confusion of like, okay, we've got a delayed minimal expectant. I don't, I don't care. I go still off of our nine line categories. He's urgent priority delayed routine. Like that's what I've got. Everybody understands that language. I don't care if you're coming from Estonia or Latvia Everybody understands that, but once you start getting, well, he's a green, he's a red, he's a one, he's a two, he's a, I don't care. We get too confused and too much going on. So I go into that and I break it up a little bit on top of that. Is he an urgent? So I, I give everybody two chem lights. Are you urgent, urgent? Like you need to go on that first bird because you need to be in surgery. Like yesterday, you get two red chem lights, one on each shoulder, especially at night. You're urgent, but right now you're fairly stable. Your vitals are good, but you still need surgery in the next hour or two. You're on the high side of priority, lower side of urgent. I'm going to give you a red and a yellow. So you're, and what I'm doing while I'm doing this is it allows, allows me to kind of see on the ground who I'm sending when. So I've got a mask cow kit in most of my trucks and chem lights and extra T-Tri-C cards and all that type of crap. And, you know, your true priority, like you've got an amputation, but you're stable. I've got tourniquets. You're not bleeding anymore. You're not going to bleed anymore because I've got two tourniquets on you. But your, your pelvis is stable. You're mentating well. You're going to be a priority priority. So you got two yellows. Oh, but now you get shot again. Well, now I switch you. Cool, you're walking... Walking wounded, you my fox. Altered mental status. I don't like how he's doing. I am in a medevac, this dude. But he's my true walking wounded green green. Cool, you got priority. Like, you got, an, you got a bad fracture. You got an open tib fib. You got a thing that, like, this is probably going to need surgery at some point, but not to necessarily save your life or even save the limb. You're just going to need, you know, some, some debridement. You need X fix, whatever it is. Maybe you're a priority green. So your priority routine. And like I, th- that's like a really convoluted way that it's in my head, but that's also how I train my guys. So it's like, hey man, I need to get four patients. Like Bird says, they can take two urgents and two, you know, routine priorities. Cool, man, I'm gonna get my first two double reds. And I'm gonna get a red, you know, two yellow greens out. Cool, like that's grabbing two yellow greens. I may not know who they are. 
initially, but they're going to come in. I've got a number on their forehead, and ideally on my tracker, I've got numbers. Cool, bro, bro, one, two, three, and four are all gone now. And so I'm numbering my dudes, and I'm doing that at the CCP entry control point. So that way, when we have everybody in, I can look across. Yeah, ideally, we've got all of our urgents in one pile, you know, one pile or one line of guys. But all of our routines over here. But like that, I don't know how many mascots you've had. I've never had that happen, other okay. than doing like, other than seeing mascot train with like fire departments that never worked out that way. Yeah. Oh, we got these big green tarps, big blue tarps. Big, yeah, like those dudes have eight hundred dudes doing a mascot. Yeah. It's going to work out fairly well for them. It's going to look really clean and really precise. For us, it's not. So anything I can do to, okay, this guy is this, this guy is this, this guy is this, and maybe my my load plan's falling apart because I thought it was a you know 60 coming in. Oh, shit, we got Casavac with a couple of J's or a couple 160 dudes on a 47. Now I can put a bunch of dudes on there, but what order are they going to go in? Well, my double reds because we have an FST are going to go in first because there's that surgical platform in the front. And dudes that don't need surgery are going to go in last. Oh, but there's not an FST, so now I'm going to put all my greens in first and reds in last. So they are first off. You know, so it's developing, and that's what I mean by developing your load plans. You know, it's not just cool, these guys are going in this order, but why are they going in that order? What order are they getting on or off the helicopter? So. So if you had to boil this down to like your top two things, uh, your top two things to take away from this, um, which would they be? Top two things. Manage your chaos as well as you can. And how you manage your chaos, take five seconds, step back, take a breath. If you need to pull all your medics, all your bros off, do so. Take five seconds for the next five minutes. Once you have stuff stable, take a minute to cover the next hour. And during that time, you're able to calm down, breathe, check your own pulse. Don't add to that chaos. And you're able to develop a plan. That's the hardest part is being able to step back and develop that. Second is communication. Don't just talk for the sake of talking. Actually communicate. Closed loop communication. And know who's supposed to communicate and when. You know, reporting three mass calls for a single event is talking for talking's sake. It doesn't add to anything. In fact, it detracts greatly from what's going on. <coughs> well, um, we're at an hour and a half now, so um, thank you, Rick, for yeah. sharing. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's always good to talk about what's going on. And that's the only the only other thing that I'll throw out there is don't be afraid to talk about this stuff because it's cathartic for us. The reason our Vietnam dudes had a ton more shell shock PTSD long term, they never talked about it. It was shameful. Our World War II dudes had a lot less for a lot longer time because they talked about it with their guys. Didn't talk about it with their kids and their grandkids. But guys with like-minded, like experiences talk with it. For today's podcast, be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.